Okay, um, so the topic for tonight is um, how, I'm sorry, is who decides, who decides halakha. This is the, the third in a three-part series. Uh, first was how is halakha organized? The second is how is halakha decided? And we're going to, um, we're going to do our best to tie everything together. Uh, what I'm going to say is that there's a difference between what we said um, between yesterday and today, in that yesterday I was trying very hard to be descriptive uh, I was trying very hard to um, to simply you know, to say what a standard consensus position of it is, and to put in my own positions as uh, rarely as possible. That's not going to be the case today. Uh, today we're very explicitly going to be prescriptive. Um, I want to I want to, I want to you know, give a vision of the halachic community. I agree with. Okay, I don't seem to be able to handle that properly. Okay, um, is there a way to handle this right? Okay. Um, I guess not. Okay. Um, okay. So um, when you ask the question like uh, pres- uh, prescriptively, uh, who decides halakha? So you have a strong temptation to say that the question we're trying to ask is what kind of human being should decide halakha? Uh, we're trying to build the ideal halakhic decisor, and that is a position that um, that I have you know, that I've been uh, part of in the past. And so I gave you to start with. There's a lot of uh, self-quotation today. Um, that um, right, an article I wrote, uh, you know, to try and get to try and uh, bring Judaism into the conversation about Supreme Court uh, nominees 12 years ago. Um, challenging to remember that 12 years ago we were having we were having these conversations already. And I said that when Moshe creates the first Jewish judiciary, God instructs him to appoint. Right, and we quote the pasuk: right, "Men of strength, or of God, right, uh, or of God, men of truth, haters of corruption." And that the first lesson Jewish tradition teaches is that judicial character is more significant than judicial politics. Okay, that's a, you know, there, there are contracts over there because what the people Moshe appoint don't have all the characteristics that, um, that God initially sets out and what the differences are, are challenging. But you could say, right, I argued it then, that uh, who should decide halakha should be people who are fundamentally men of good character. And if you look at the entire article later, you can see that I had a description not just of personal character, but of judicial character. Uh, but there are dangers um, in that kind of approach. The first is that people can dissemble good character. And so if you say the people decide halakha are the people who, right, who in the public estimation are people of great character, you make yourself vulnerable um, gravely to charisma. So I'm not sure that that's the right way to, the right way to focus is on the character of the people, that's a very important thing. I spend a good deal of my professional life trying to, um, right, trying to do that, but um, but it's risky. I see that, uh, right, that um, the question is, you know, what, that it's also a difference between people who decide halakha in the, um, in the realm of just dealing with one person and people who are deciding uh, what we might call case law between people. And there's also a difference, which we'll see later on, between deciding the abstracting restriction of the law and deciding the law in a specific case, right? Those are both, uh, those are both important distinctions. But for now, I'm, I'm eliding those. And the major thing I want to say is that we could think about character, but character, um, to me, I'm making it the primary characteristic and deciding that, okay, we'll, we'll decide, the way we'll decide halakha is we'll make sure that only people of good character decide halakha uh, might very well lead to uh, right, a grave risk of uh, people who are good at faking character um, and um, and dominant figures through charisma. Okay, um, a second question 
Um, a second question we could ask is um, what kind of scholar should decide halakha? We could try and set up characteristics of the scholars who should decide halakha. We should say <coughs> that it's only scholars who know the entire Talmud by heart, or it's only scholars who can recite the Mishnah backwards, uh, or whatever your characteristics are. Some of them are more, more reasonable than others, and we could set, we could set requirements uh, for, uh, for scholars. And there are two ways to set requirements for scholars, which matters. One is to say that the best scholars have to do it, or to set very high standards for doing that. And one is to set fairly low standards and say you have to at least be able to read Hebrew and be able to distinguish between Aramaic and Hebrew because otherwise you will sometimes mistake the Hebrew ain not for the Hebrew, for, sorry, the Hebrew ain not for the Aramaic in yes, and people who can't distinguish between no and yes um, right, are not competent to decide halacha. Right? So those are, that's another kind of issue. We should be aware right, that there are through the ages, um, any number of lists of, of scholarly requirements, and we'll talk about them more later, um, but it's important to recognize that scholarly standards can change uh, over time. And often we have, uh, often what happens is people cling to obsolete standards of scholarship in order to try and create a certain kind of elitism, uh, as in, happens in many professions, that you, you, know, you create a guild or a union and you try and and you try and make people do things that are really jumping through hoops, in order um, as opposed to substantive requirements for the job, even after um, conditions radically change. And my own argument is that uh, Barilan has radically changed the game in terms of the nature of knowledge, uh, where research skills are now enormously more valuable um, than or than uh, than they were relative to memorization. That was also true that Barilan and I think. Um, this is you know, a line, uh, I think that there's a line quoted from Rav Shechter saying that the way you can tell whether someone's in Talmud Chacham or not is to speak to them on Shabbos and see if they know anything without research, and that's true. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it scares me often on Shabbos. But it's also the case that people who memorize a lot but can't use Barilan um, will really not be capable of participating in serious discourse in another 10, 20 years because However much you memorize, you cannot know as much as, as an ever-growing database. And my own autobiographical thing about this is uh, you know, that in, once in my life, I knew something on my own that Rabbi J. David Leich uh, did not know. And it's you know, one of the great memories of my life, the one time I knew something that he didn't. But once I had the Barilan, then, you know, then I could ask questions in sheer pointing out, uh, pointing out gaps you know, or, or trivia that he hadn't known and things like that because I had access to research. You know, then a uh, marvelous example of turnabout justice was when uh, we had started, my own students started bringing laptops to, um, to Shear, and the whole Shear could point out the gaps in my knowledge, which were vastly more gaping than uh, those, those in Rabbi Blake. So, you know, if you, if you hit a topic that I had myself done the best uh, Barilan research I could, and I was an early adopter, but by now my students are, you know, are better and are giving, um, are giving uh, tutorials online about how to use Otsar uh, and things like that. So my own research skills are, uh, you know, likely to be um, treated as uh, you know the equivalent of knowing how to how to um, how to program a VCR, which I don't. Um, some point soon. Okay, right. So scholarship is also uh, is also changes, and it and it obviously it risks a certain kind of elitism when people start making decisions for it. Every group that gains a certain gains power is 
at risk of starting to make decisions for its own group as opposed to making decisions for its constituency. And that obviously is a risk of a rabbinic elite uh, as well. Lichtenstein talked about this to a certain extent. Um, okay, we could also talk about, say, okay, you know, we're not gonna go by our evaluations of who they are, which are like, which are easily mistaken, but we'll talk about um, the people who decide halakha are the people who have a certain amount of social standing. And that has, you know, all of these have truth to them. If somebody who has broadly accepted in the community can make bigger decisions than someone who's not broadly accepted in the community. But to say that you only get to decide halakha if you have a certain number of, you know, a certain amount of communal power, it runs, first of all, you run the risk of charisma again, and you run the risk of a dangerous, a dangerous cycle where only those people with power um, can get more. So for all of these reasons, um, these questions, right, approaching it from the standpoint of personal characteristics seems to me to be a, uh, a risky endeavor and not necessarily the first approach. Um, I like to teach the following Gemara as a cool illustration of uh, this danger. Um, so the Gemara in Chagiga, at the end of the story of Elisha ben Avuya, um, the Gemara in Chagiga says, um, how could Rav Meir, right, Rav Meir famously was Elisha ben Avuya, Achir's student, how could he learn it? Uh, so the Gemara, right, because there's a statement from Rabbi Baruchan in the name of Rav Yochanan, where he said, right, what does is, what is the uh, Navi mean when he says that um, the lips of the priest shall preserve knowledge, right, so, um, and they shall seek Torah from his mouth, for he is a Malach Hashem Tzvakot. So he says, if the, the Rav is similar to a Malach Hashem Tzvakot, then Yivakshu Torah Mipiu, they should seek Torah from his mouth. And if not, they must not, they must not seek Torah from his mouth. So it sounds like Rabbi Yochanan is setting up exactly a character test, um, not just for deciding halacha, but for transmitting it. Um, right? It's Kalvachomer, I think, for, um, for deciding it. So there are various answers that are famous. Right? Rav Dimi says that uh, Rav Meir ate a date and threw out the pits, or so Rav Meir filtered Elisha ben Avuya, and then we have to figure out why could, if Rav Meir can do that, can the rest of us do it or not, which is part of the Gemara I skipped. And then Rava has a much more dramatic thing, right? He says, why are scholars compared to chestnuts? Because you can dump a chestnut on the worst kind of things, and because it has a shell, what's inside it doesn't become disgusting. So therefore, a scholar, even though it's behaved rottenly, his Torah does not become disgusting. So that's a much more dramatic claim, right? Rava seems to think that, um, that you know, the Torah is really not affected by the personality of the person uh, through whom it's... Um, through whom it is transmitted. But then the Gemara says, Rabbi Barshela finds Eliyahu Navi, and he asks Eliyahu Navi, what is God doing right now? Eliyahu Navi says to him, God is quoting the rabbis. That's its own interesting thing. But he's not quoting Rav Meir. Now, why is he not quoting Rav Meir? He's not quoting Rav Meir because Rav Meir learned from Acher, and God agrees with Rabbi Yochanan that Torah can't be transmitted by people who of poor character. To which, um, right, to which Rabbi Barshela says, what are you talking about, God? Or Eliyahu, right? What is God talking about? Rav Meir already answered, right? We already have that answer right up here, right? And he doesn't quote, uh, he doesn't quote Rabbi's dramatic answer. He quotes Rav Dimi's answer in the name of the, uh, of the people in Israel. He says, Rav Meir found a pomegranate. He ate its inside and disposed of its rind. So he convinces God, right? So I, I teach this in a shir called Dangerous Hava Aminas, uh, because right here, Chazal are raising the possibility that really Torah should have to be transmitted by um, perfect people. And it's such, right, and they, they want you to know they take it seriously, so they actually put that havamina, that initial thought, in the mind of God. Um, but then they talk God out of it. But I think the underlying, uh, aside from the beauty of, of their willingness to 
put themselves at risk that way and to empathize with the critiques of the tradition, they tell you that this is a grave risk. If you say that only people of great character can decide halakha, then you run the risk that after you have, um, after someone's character is exposed much later, that you have, that all of Torah is destabilized. As the rabbis say, look, you know, if we, right, if, if it turns out that, so we knew Rameir learned from Akhra, we did it anyway. Suppose we never really, right, suppose Rameir, you know, Rameir hid all his um, knowledge from Elisha ben Avuya and his works, so we thought he hadn't learned anything, right? There, it, there's a phenomenon in rabbinic literature of people hiding the non-traditional material they know by, you know, by referring to it in acronyms, uh, as Rav Yosef Zachariah Stern does, or um, cloaking it in metaphors the way, the way Rav Kook does. So what happens if we suddenly realize, you know, a um, hundred years later, that a lot of the Torah we have came from imperfect people. The whole system will be destabilized. That's another reason for not formally saying that our requirement uh, is that only people who are perfect um, do it. All right, so that's not necessarily the first, uh, the first place to look. Okay. Um, so I, all right, so I'm going to go today more for a, um, more for a procedural approach. So let's try and, and think about how that is. So in um, yesterday's shear, I argued for a, um, I argued for a three-tiered uh, approach to thinking about what kind of, right, how you approach the question of deciding halakha. The first tier um, was to see whether a system has any purchase, whether an idea or, or halakha has any purchase in the system at all. Right? Is it in the system or is it so far out that you can't even, it doesn't even start, it has no standing in the system at all. That's one kind of decision, right? That's what we might call the gatekeeper. Uh, the gatekeeper only have to ask the question, who are the gatekeepers? Who are the people who get to decide that this idea just isn't part of the system? Okay. A second level, I said, was that, I should stop quoting myself. A second level is um, once you have conceded that this idea has a place in the system, meaning that it's not, it, it's not a ridiculous reading and it doesn't, violate, um, it doesn't violate any of your procedural norms. So now you have to ask yourself, okay, is it related to an issue about which I have to reach a decision? Because um, right, depending on which, uh, which interesting metaphor you're fond of, there can be 70 plausible readings of, uh, right, of every text, which presumably can produce a wide variety of opinions on any halachic issue, or 600,000 um, readings of, of any particular text, which can produce a much, you know, presumably a somewhat wider, at least, variety of issues. So the second question, that has to come up. The second decision I make is whether a decision has to be made. Okay, and I want to uh, embody that uh, that idea in this text for you. Right. So we have a Gemara in Chulin 43b. The Gemara says that um, right. This, one who wishes to follow Beit Shammai, their leniencies and stringencies, may do so, or he may follow Beit Hillel, their leniencies and stringencies. Right. So we give we give people the option. At this point, it seems to follow Bishama or follow Bishilal, and nobody said no. You have to decide on every issue. Right, every issue has to be decided. Every issue, one can follow Bishama or Bishilal. Now, you don't approach issues atomistically; you approach issues uh, coherently. So you have to either follow Bishama consistently or Bishilal consistently. But we didn't feel a need to make the decision. Then all of a sudden, we you know we get the, we get a Gemara in Erevin, which we talked about last time. May or may not be chronologically later, or maybe that these texts are intention. Um, that uh, Rabbah said Shmuel that Beit Hillel and Shammai disputed for three years 
who the halakha follows, and then a heavenly voice emerges and says, these and those are the living words of God, but the law follows Beit Hillel. Right? So that's a fascinating claim, because what it tells you is that the opinions of Beit Shah and Beit Hillel each meet this standard, which means that they passed the first test. They are plausible readings of the tradition, and nonetheless, we have to make a decision. Okay, so, but before then, we didn't have to make a decision, so it could be that there are lots of cases in which the appropriate reaction is not to make a decision, but somebody has to decide whether or not to, um, whether, whether or not to make a decision. And who should make that decision is a, uh, is a very big deal um, because there are always going to be um, kind right? There are always going to be zealots who wish to push for every, um, for, every, for every issue to be resolved and resolved in the way they think is plausible. And often they wish it to be resolved in ways that, um, that are extreme and you need people to not make that decision. But we have to, um, we have to, uh, right, we, have, we have to point out that um, sometimes it seems that the uh, Kanaim are right. Um, so, right, so the third level of decision, the third level of decision is once we agree that a decision has to be made, so making a decision in halakha is not a matter of black and white often, it's a matter of assigning uh, a level of authority to a, uh, to a particular position. Um, so right, saying this is the default position, this is right, the, what we call, this is the Chachila position, this is the B'dievet position, uh, which you know, in, uh, in Mitzvah Daseh means that, that you shouldn't have done it that way, but once you did it that way, you don't have to redo it. And Mitzvah Lotase means that you really shouldn't do it. Um, and uh, then we have the Shasatrak position, um, which, um, which means that you know, sometimes you can do things that ordinarily we would tell you not to do. Um, so how do we, so, right, so the third level of decision, and once we've decided that a decision needs to be made, is to assign degrees of authority to those decisions. I wanted to point out the um, complexity of that in one of my favorite um, Talmudic sort of uh, paradoxes is the Mishnah idiot asks, why do we mention the opinion of individuals among the majorities, seeing as the halakha always follows the opinion of the majorities? So we pointed out yesterday that's not really true. The halakha only follows the opinions of the majorities if you don't see yourself as qualified to decide on the merits. So that we could just answer the question by saying that we record all opinions because people get to make decisions on the merits, although lots of people won't have the authority to do that and they're just going to make, or the confidence to do that and they're just going to make mechanical decisions. But the Gemara says, we really do it so that if a Beitin should see the opinion of the individual and rely on it, and we understand that to mean not that they think the opinion is correct, but that they think the opinion is necessary in a given situation, even though they agree that it is less likely correct than the, um, than the other position, or alternatively, that they don't see themselves as qualified to decide, so they're just mechanically, you can say, okay, when there's a dispute between individuals and um, and a group, so then you, you rule like the group by default, the chatrila, but under certain kind of circumstances, you can rule like the individual, and we talked about the rules of that uh, in the Shat Hatak shir, which uh, the, the night shir. Okay, but then there's a conflicting position, Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda says, if so, why do we mention the opinions of individuals among the majorities if this only nullifies them? And Rabbi Huda says, we do it to say, because if a man says, such is my received tradition, you would say to him, you heard in accordance with the opinion of that man X. So Rabbi Huda says the purpose is not to allow a Beitin to rely on it, 
The purpose is to allow a Beit Din to reject other people's traditions. Right? We record the minority opinion because people might say, ah, you only say, you, the majority opinion exists only because they weren't aware of this tradition. Now we can say, nope, you know, they were aware of that tradition and they rejected it. So we have two conflicting positions. One position says you preserve minorities because you want to be able to rely on minority decisions. And one position says you preserve minorities because you want to be able to prevent reliance on minority, uh, on minority positions. Um, the anonymous position, which we're going to assume generally is the majority, is that minorities are preserved to limit the power of majorities. And the minority position of Rabbi Huda is that is preserved in order to tell you that you're not allowed to rely on minorities. So there's an irony in the, ter- in the sense of Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda's position is probably being reported as a minority, which means that his position is being reported only so that it can later be rejected. Uh, that paradox is, um, is, plays out the other way, it's a seftin ediot, because here we say the, halacha, the tosefta, right, the, um, says always halacha follows the opinion of the majority, and the opinions of individuals are mentioned only in order to nullify them, and here is the position of the majority that supports its own power. Right? It says we only mention minorities, in order, we only mention minorities in order to reject them. Rehuda says that the opinions of individuals are mentioned so that, so, right, so in case you need them, and then the Chachamim say no. The purpose of, um, of mentioning minority opinions is to reject them. So, in, um, right, so what happens is that the question of whether, uh, on the question of whether minorities uh, are preserved, minority opinions are preserved in order to give them authority or to deny them authority, the two texts reverse the question of which side is the minority and which side is the majority. And that gives you a sense of how difficult it is to make this rule, um, to make this rule apply uh, in practice and to make those sorts of decisions. Um, I do want to point out, uh, in the sense of fairness, is that these decisions, these roles can be iterative, right? So the first decision you make is who gets to make the, uh, right, is does it even make it into the level of uh, being, uh, being a part of the Lachic discourse? The second decision you make is do I now have to make a decision as to what is level, uh, what is role the discourse is? And one of the possibilities uh, emerging from that is that we'll decide, you know what, it was plausible but we're going to declare that an opinion like that is no longer plausible in the future. It was plausible, but now it won't be. And the way we embody that is that, um, is that uh, we, the Gemara says that Beit Shammai, in the context of Beit Hillel, presumably even according to the positions that say you record minority opinions in order to give them authority, but everyone agrees that Beit Shammai is not, right, Beit Shammai doesn't count at all. Right, so everyone agrees because it says elu elu divrei, um, chayim. Everyone agrees that um, that Beit Shammai counts is a plausible part of the system, but so this position is, so far as I know, universally accepted. Subsequently, which is that Beit Shammai has no halachic opinion, uh, uh, no halachic authority at all. So one of the outcomes of the third level of decision is right, is removing something. Halachically, right? Not from Torah, but Ruben is saying halachically from the discourse at all. And that is a real option. Um, but I think we should understand that as a, uh, we should understand that as being a nuclear option. And it should be, it should happen, uh, it should happen as rarely as possible. And we see continually that this kind of option is abused, um, where people are constantly trying to 
read past positions out of the tradition in ways I think are not wise. Um, so I, I was interested um, in the controversy about the Zoom Seder Psak, which I have many, many uh, issues with, and we'll talk about them, some of them um, tomorrow morning, and we'll talk about some of them with Shabbat. But one of the things that interested me was that one of the rabbis signing you know, gave this enormous encomium to Rev Ben Zeal, the former Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel, uh, who definitely, you know, I think, you know, was an incredibly, uh, it seems to me, effective, humane, halachic leader. And I also know that um, you know, that uh, friends of mine in, you know, in the YU world uh, will say, look, you just can't quote over Zeal. He's, you know, he's not really, um, he's not really part of it. Um, and, you know, and I'm not going to enter now into the question of what kind of scholar Rebazil was. Uh, I think that itself, it becomes a challenging question because there are different ways of learning. And so people can be great scholars in one sense and not great scholars in another. And as our evaluation of what constitutes scholarship evolve, so people standing can change just as um, let's say in the world of American poetry, you know, many of us on this call probably—I don't know what our average age is—probably you know, probably um, went to school in an age where A. E. Hausman was one of the great poets of the tradition. Um, and I don't think you can find anybody in the last—you know—who's been to high school or college in the last 15 to 20 years who's ever read A. E. Hausman. I get blank looks from my students um, when I quote him. It's—it's you know, it's worse than Simon and Garfunkel because there hasn't been a retro A. E. Hausman. Uh, a husband phase. Um, so I think we should be aware that this can happen, but it is a nuclear option. And my my bet is that you know if I were trying to think of characteristics of people in uh, who should decide halacha, I would want people who have a bias towards preserving options as opposed to rejecting them. But a fair thing you can say, and we'll talk about this as we go on. Although I realize we're getting later than I expected, is that I also have that you know that I am less inclined, I think, to read options out intellectually, although even then, you know, I have written a, you know, a public letter in which I declared that, uh, that a friend of mine's um, you know, halachic letter was devoid of any, halachic, you know, any halachic standing because it was an obvious error. And I also want to read certain moral positions out of the tradition, so it might be that I don't have the right characteristics uh, for that. I also wanted to point out a Gemara that I mentioned last time, which, uh, which points out that um, that expertise is a is a, a sword that cuts both ways. So this is the Gemara. I'm sorry, I didn't translate it. In which uh, Rav is denied the final smicha of Yatir Becharot Al Yatir, even though it says that he spent 18 months with shepherds learning about it, and they give two answers. One is just politics, that giving him all the smichas would have um, caused him to uh, you know, to be at the same level as his brother-in-law, and that would have been a bad idea. And politics plays a real role uh, in halakha. One should not pretend that. Um, you know, halakha is in- inevitably politics, and you have to there. And you can do it. You know, as in all politics, you can do it without venality. But there are people who gather power and people who don't, and there are people who work well in communities and people who don't. And that function and halakha is not immune from any of those decisions. Um, and the other possibility is that Rob's expertise was too great, and if you have, and if your expertise is too great, you end up making decisions that are correct intellectually but bad law because people don't understand the um, people don't understand the difference um, and this is really I think a big issue in terms of dealing with technology uh, how you deal with technology that really you know how you 
decide halacha about issues where no one really is going to understand the technology. Um, now, this is a dangerous thing. I remember that um, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik once challenged an audience in the midst of a, a lecture on you know, intellectual history. And, he's, you know, and he said, has anybody of you here ever read you know, a full essay of the Jewish V'chidush of Rabbi Akiva Eger, which he saw as this you know, endlessly obsolete uh, technical work that you know, couldn't imagine that anybody in Hawaii would actually read it. And um, Rabbi Elio Baruch Shulman you know, raised his hand and said, I, I read the whole thing because he still learned that way. And, you know, and, and over the past 30 years, his method of learning has come back into, come back into vogue. So with all that, you know, I would say that um, the work that really made Rosh Lama Zalman, which is his work on refrigerators, uh, I have my doubts about um, whether there are you know, 100 people in the world that's excessive or even 10 people in the world who are really involved in Psak who have made it through the entire work and understood it. And, right, so, and for Psak about refrigerators to be based on that kind of technical expertise seems to me to be, uh, to be problematic. Right, to right to devolve it entirely to the experts because I don't think it's a purely technical matter. You also have, you also have to consider lots of other factors, and right. So I think that there's a there's a risk involved in that um, as well. There's also uh, Gemara Ervin, um, which claims that the reason we don't paskin like Rameir, right? So Amar Vacha Amar Vichlina Galuvi Olam. It's perfectly known before the one who spoke and created the world. Sheim b'derosh or Rameir Kamoto. The Rameir was there was nothing like Rav Meir in his generation. I think that's not intended to express ambivalence yet. Um, so why didn't they just decide the halacha always falls Rav Meir? Because nobody could, un- nobody could really fathom his arguments. Because from their perspective, at least Rav Meir would win the argument no matter what, and they couldn't evaluate his arguments. Uh, so you can read that, you know, more cynically as uh, as accusing him of sophistry, or a simple reality that um, he was too sharp, and so therefore his arguments weren't evaluable. And so accepting his arguments would have been like accepting a botkol; you couldn't evaluate them, which is also the case, I think, you know, in extreme expertise when somebody claims that um, you know that I know this to be the science, and it would take you know enormous amount of study to get there. So then most people have. One of two choices: either ignore it or accept it as absolute truth, um, and that's a very dangerous state of affairs. So the Rav Acha claims that's why we didn't we don't pass like Rav Meir. The problem, of course, is that we um, that we do pass like Rav Meir a lot. So the, this statement itself is uh, the statement itself is overstated. Okay, um, I do want to, uh, as I point out, another thing on that level of the final, the third level of decision being iterative and possibly going back to the first, that um, the reason that decisions often have to be made or the reason that people argue that decisions have to be made and the reasons that are embedded in the Gemara as the formal reasons for requiring decisions in the case of Bishan and Hill are either the risk that the Torah will split or the risk that if you don't make a decision, there will be ongoing communal infighting. Um, the problem is that if you, in experience, it seems that the attempts to make the decisions, you know, that the um, the the cure is often worse worse than the disease. That it's precisely the claim that your tradition is no longer part of us that leads to the fighting and that leads to uh, sectarianism. And the reason that might be is that in the ideal system that Halakha imagines, you have a Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is a universally accepted authority, 
And so the Sanhedrin is the one that makes the decision about whether a decision need to, needs to be made. And, and its decision, and it only chooses to make those decisions when the alternative to making a decision is, um, or at least it has, it has the option of avoiding making a decision, and I think often would have chosen that option, if, what, if the price of not making a decision is either that the Torah splits, so people are no longer accountable to each other um, religiously and ethically, or that, the, um, that there's communal infighting. But it only worked because the Sanhedrin could actually settle such prices. So now what we have is people trying to play the role of the Sanhedrin, but they can't because they're involved on one side. And that's what the Gemara said, that the Sanhedrin couldn't settle, right, the way I understand it, the Gemara, that we couldn't settle the Machlokati Behil and Bechamai through the Sanhedrin because everyone perceived the Sanhedrin as already being divided among them. So they didn't have the authority to settle it. And attempts, attempts to settle disputes um, that are that threatened to split the community by trying to exercise power over the losing side, uh, whatever you hope will be the losing side, just gen- generate reactions and actually yield all those results. Um, so I think you have to be very, very careful uh, before exercising that kind of um, attempt at that kind of authority. And yet, if you do nothing, then your community pixelates and has no capacity to do anything effectively. Uh, so I, I, want, I don't want to in any way underestimate the complexity of it. And I could argue that the people who get to decide halacha should be the people who understand questions like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess if it's only understanding what the question is, then I would, you know, that I guess I'm engaged in an apology pro vida sua. Uh, if it means that you make those decisions well, so that, that's an entirely separate question. Okay, so the, um, the real question to me about who should decide halacha uh, should be focused less on, on which people specifically get to decide halacha, then on an, um, at least I want to say it, then on an abstract question, um, and there are, I think there are four abstract possibilities uh, about who should decide halakha. One is halakha should be decided either by an individual or an elite. And the second is halakha should be de- decided by a diffuse set of people um, meeting, uh, right, um, meeting a set of reasonably attainable qualifications. And we could modernize that and say, you know, that maybe in addition to meeting the reasonably attained qualifications, whatever your minimum standard are, we could talk about representation, um, right? That's a, that's a very uh, modern democratic notion, but which I think is very reasonable. You can root it in halakha because halakha requires you know, every shevet to be able to have representation. Every shevet has its own, uh, every shevet has its own um, Sanhedrin. And I think the Sanhedrin had to have at least one member of um, of every shevet, so I think that the idea of representation can come in. Obviously, um, we have more comp- we have uh, challenging issues nowadays, specifically in the area of gender. Um, I think that all of you know that I am uh, a huge fan of believing that we have to make women part you know, equal parts of halachic discourse. But obviously, that has not always um, been the case. So that's a second model, which is diffusion of authority and possibly uh, possibly in addition to minimal standards, representative authority. A third possibility is that decisions should be made by the community as a whole. Um, this, you know, if you want to be provocative, we can say that this is the idea that Solomon Schefter called Catholic Israel, uh, right? The whole Jewish community gets to make decisions. And the fourth is that decisions should be made by everybody. Everyone should make their own halachic decisions. Now, there's going to be an element of all of those, right? In the end of the day, there are going to be decisions that are made by an elite. There are going to be decisions that are made by, uh, by, you know, by middle managers. There are going to be decisions that are made in some way by, you know, politically, 
by the force of the community as a whole, and there are going to be decisions that are made by individuals. The question is what your default is, and also which kind of decisions um, are made. Um, right? Which kind? Which kind? You know, of the three levels, um, I would say you know that you know that probably the community as a whole has enormous impact on the first and second levels of decision, but much less on the third. Um, and the you know and and we could talk about right. We should talk about you know at the, on the third level, um, right where, where the default setting uh, should be. Okay, so I wanted to, to um, illustrate this through another article of mine that I wrote. Um, I think I don't know. I don't remember how long ago it is. I gave you the website, although that is no longer. I think I think the traditiononline.org is now the the place that tradition posts things. But there was a while that uh, tradition had a blog edited by Rabbi uh, Shlomo Brody, SBM alum. Um, and at the time, there, you know, there there had been a um, a report by the um, by the RCA, uh, which was withdrawing its earlier or at least partially withdrawing, or at least in a certain case retreating from its earlier endorsement of brain death. There was a response um, by a, a large group of rabbis, um, which uh, headlined uh, by uh, my friend Rabbi Dov Linzer, and then. Um, Agudas Yisrael put out a response to that statement. And in response to all those, I put out an article trying to analyze, uh, analyze the difference, the difference right, to say what I said is my goal was to frame the issues in a way that makes both sides as comprehensible as possible, and perhaps to explain where their underlying, what the underlying conflicts are that prevent each of them from understanding each other. Um, and you can understand it in terms of the framework I've given so far, that when each, when neither side can understand each other, then what you have is the Torah became two Toros. And when the Torah becomes two Toros, um, there's a risk that you're going to cut somebody off. There's a possibility you'll choose to live with each other, Ashkenazim and Sardim and, and the Shulchan Arach, but there's also a possibility that a group which on a first level, you know, you would say it really should make it through the first level of the Lachic Discourse, it should be Elu Elu. Um, we, you know, but there's a risk that the mutual incomprehension Will force will for, will lead to the community and its leadership choosing to regard that group as Beit Shammai and not having any halachic status at all. And eventually, it's very hard for people. Beit Shammai dies out, I think, eventually because it's hard to stay in a halachic community where your positions have no weight at all. Uh, so I'm trying to prevent that by having explained. So here's what I here's how I understood it. Um, Rabbi Linzer's statement is compatible with the following procedural argu- procedural arguments. Um, some highly significant poskim, including Ravgidali Do Schwartz, have ruled that one or another standard of neurological death can be recognized by halacha. Right? I want to make this purely procedural, so it doesn't really matter for us. You shouldn't need to understand what the arguments were. We just want to understand what happens procedurally. Right? So some poskim said that a position can be recognized by halacha, meaning that they said that this is the that this meets the first threshold, and they have decided not to exercise an authority under the second threshold. So this is now a viable halachic option, leaving aside whether it's a default or not. Their authority is sufficient to prevent an outside observer from declaring uh, someone acting on the basis of such, that someone acting on the basis of such a ruling is acting not halachically. Right? So Berlinzer and these people claim there were people who we think that their role in the halachic system, right? that's part of the right, is that if they say that something fits into the framework of Elu Ve'elu Deverelehim Chaim and plausible 
um, and, and, and halachic authority, then nobody else can say that it doesn't. Okay, so that's a very strong claim that there's, right, there's an elite, right, if we watch, uh, there's an elite, they said, and that elite has the power to get any right, to get anything they include past the first threat, past the first threshold, and to prevent you from making a decision of the second kind that excludes it completely from halachic authority. Okay. Um, then everything I said the follow, uh, the statement said the following, as I understand it. Let's leave aside the question of which position is correct as a matter of the internal dynamics of halacha. Our position is that if we weren't halachic, if we were just engaged in a, a let's say, a purely utilitarian um, evaluation, right? Are the consequences, or you know, or some other kind of ethical, non-halachic consideration? We said, are the consequences of pasquing this way better, or the, the consequences of pasquing that way better? So we believe that the consequences of pasquing like this position, which those that elite has gotten, has gotten into the realm of elu elu, we think. The consequences of pasking that way are better than the consequences of pasking like the other options that we agree exist with an elevator. Then they made a fascinating claim. They said, therefore, rabbis who do not see themselves as competent to decide this issue on its formal halachic merits, when consulted on the issue by lay people, should either indicate their utilitarian preference for the brain death position without framing that as a psak, or else encourage those people to consult Poskim who decide the issue in that direction. Okay, so that was, a, that was um, I thought, an amazing thing, which I, you'll, you'll have to decide for yourselves how much um, sympathy you have for it. I have intuit, instinctively a lot of sympathy for it uh, in one way and some difficulty with it another way. But let's try to understand exactly what he is um, saying. What he's saying is, you always, there are always two kinds of ways to, um, to make halachic decisions, you can have an opinion about the underlying substance of the issue halachically. And we said, if that's the case, you have an opinion, so then assuming, right, then we have our issue, like who's entitled to an opinion, but assuming that you meet whatever our threshold is for having uh, an opinion, so then you get to make your own decision. But most people under most circumstances don't have opinions, right? They're not, they don't, they're, they're either too humble or not competent enough to genuinely and ideally have the, the right combination of competence and humility to know when, they, when, when their opinion is valuable intellectually and when it's not. Um, so they, um, they, um, they, right, so they, they, um, they can't have a substantive opinion, but they could, in principle, uh, think that we need to decide this mechanically, by, you know, by whatever the rules are, who has greater authority, uh, majority, minority, internal to their community, all those sorts of issues, they could still paskin, right? That's, that's those rabbis. So Rabbi Linzer said, and everybody the statement said, on this issue, you should not use mechanical rules of psaq. So what they said is really at the second level, what you should say is, this decision is not, right? This issue is not subject to halachic, right? To halachic decision-making. So we're gonna live at the second level where this is one of the options halachically, and we're not, we don't feel an obligation to decide it. Now, right, and, and you rabbis shouldn't decide it mechanically. You should leave it in that stage. So now the question is, but your layperson, um, your layperson does, right, what are they supposed to do now? So what he said is you can either tell them, you know what, halacha, halachically you can do either. 
but I have an extra halachic preference for this position as opposed to that. And then it's really your decision. It's really your decision. All I can tell you is which decision I think would be better, but my preference is not halachic at all. Well, alternatively, they said, what you can do is, you know that there is somebody that there is somebody already who has decided, there are people who have decided that this is the halachically preferable option. They have engaged in the third level of decision-making and they've decided, you know what? Probably both of these positions are elu elu, but this is the right one. So you, Rabbi, as opposed to following your mechanical rules of decision-making, you should send them to the person who makes the proper decision. So that's a really interesting claim because it suggests that, first of all, but you know, the role of like, the role of who makes decisions. So that one of the ways of making a decision is who you refer to. And we should recognize that. And so it might be that among the most important roles that, um, that in terms of deciding halacha, and that is often you know, a role played by what we call middle managers, or you could call them if you want, um, you know, uh, often synagogue rabbis, their vital role is to decide whom they refer to, and that is, and the question, and that really is a kind of halachic decision. So, how do we relate to um, this idea that um, one of the ways in which you, who decides? Well, ultimately, um, there's a group of people who make third-level decisions, third-level decisions on substance as opposed to mechanics. But then you have to ask. But since they don't, they don't have, they have no voting procedures, no Sanhedrin. So then that just throws it back to right to everyone else, right? Once they've legitimated uh, a variety of decisions, now you have to decide whom to ask. So everyone again, in the end, everyone again makes their, make, gets to make their own decision. Okay, that's for religion so far. And then he went, um, then he went further. Um, but he says it's possible to make a formal halachic argument that permits the receiving of organs taken from brain dead patients even if one formally forbids the removal of such arguments, right? You can construct an argument using various techniques of doubt and things like that, which says you're allowed to receive organs from brain dead patients, but you're not allowed to, um, but, you're, but you're not allowed to, um, you're, not, you're not allowed to donate because, uh, because, okay, well, let's, let's refrain from evaluating the formal plausibility of the argument. I would agree it's formally plausible. This would mean that the, the outcome of halacha would be that halachic Jews would allow their lives to be saved by taking organs from brain dead people, which they think is at least possibly killing, but would not allow themselves to be killed in the same way to save others. Um, and the result of that would be that the Allahic community would receive many more organs than it donated. And this would generate the appearance that um, Orthodox Jews considered um, our lives more valuable than those of others because we're willing to take their organs but not donate. And therefore, because of right, because of the outcomes, right, outcomes two and three, right? Because this leads to a, a to hypocrisy, um, and to uh, um, that and to a but the reality and perception that our lives seem more um, more valuable than others. Therefore, we have to reject it. Now, how do we reject it? We can reject it by claiming that you know what that part of deciding halacha is the threshold has to be not just is it formally continuous with the past, um, technically in halakha, but also is, right, there's an ethical evaluation about the outcome. And so when you have, right, so there's a, in the third level, if there's a bunch of opinions that both look like elu elu, and one of them is morally untenable, the result should be 
throw it out of the system, right? We should exercise our power and make it no longer meet level uh, meet level one. Okay, and similarly, right? If you even if you right, even if you're not making an internal procedural argument, you can say that you right that you can't follow because of Chil Hashem Mishum Eva. Okay, so that those are all of Rabbi Linzer's uh, moves, which I think can be understood very well in uh, terms of the framework uh, that I set out. Uh, whereas what Aguda said is that um, you're not a, when you're when you're thinking halachically, you can't bring in external factors. What are you talking about consequences? Halacha already considers consequences. And if the halacha comes out the other way, then you have no right. What are you doing participating? You're right, you're you're intervening improperly in halachic conversation by mentioning irrelevancies. Um, therefore, they said if you have a halachic question which you can't which you can't resolve, right, your option has to be to refer the question either to the either to the greatest available legal decisor, if that's your model, or to the decisor who usually asks legal questions, who in turn will probably you know, refer it to whomever they see as the greatest available legal decisor. Right? If, you don't, right? if you don't have a technical way of resolving the halakha, you have no role in the system. Right? And you should have a mechanical process for handing it off to other people to resolve. And secondly, they said, you're going to, right, who are you, Rabbi Linzer and, and you, a couple hundred other rabbis who signed on, or whatever it was, who are you to make the claim that other people's, uh, that great poskin made a decision and you think it's completely out of bounds? Um, so you can watch, right? So first, you know, the irony is that Rabbi, the, the Rabbi Linzer position said, look, there are people who said this, so you can't throw it out. Um, formally, you have to admit it as a formal halakhic option. And a good turns around and says, there are people who said this, so you can't eliminate it as a moral uh, religious option, right? So what they each say is that there are people, there's an elite that has the authority to carry something over the, carry something over the threshold. Um, and Rabbi Linzer argues, and once the elite carries over the threshold, there's no other group of people that has the right to exclude it from formal conversation. And Aguda says, once those people have carried over to the threshold, there's no other group of people who have the right to, exclu- right to exclude it from halachic conversation on moral grounds. Okay, I wanted to argue that the, um, the really underlying issue um, is that there are two fundamental approaches to how halakha should be decided. One approach is that the ideal mode of halakha is the goal is to make the right decision. And there is a, at least a best decision in every case. And so it makes sense that the best decision should be made by the best possible decisor. Now, practically, uh, right, practically, it's hard for one person to deal with all that. That's why we get to Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu appoint, um, appointing uh, um, other people. But ideally, right, if it were, if it were, um, if it were substantively possible, then we would have Moshe Rabbeinu make all the decisions for us. Right? And that's right, and that's their model. And I think that the Agoda model makes a lot of sense because their whole goal is to say that um, if you are not halachically qualified technically, you have no role in the decision process at all. Um, whereas I think the Rabbi Linzer side argued that the ideal mode of halacha is that all decisions are made by autonomous individuals. Um, right? So in practice, the problem is, but you know, the, the same in any, uh, in any liberal model, right, you, you're going to need a social contract on some issues because you have to do some things together. So autonomy, halachically, is going to be constrained the same way as autonomy politically sometimes needs to be constrained. Um, and there's a need for a formal halachic system, but if the formal halachic system exhausts itself, 
that's not a terrible thing. The formal halachic system exhausts itself, so then decision power goes back to autonomous individuals or maybe a community exercising exercising autonomy, and that's perfectly fine. Right? We don't have any difficulty with individuals making um, decisions informed by halakha, but if all halakha can do is inform you that you have a choice, so that's great. Now you know that all your choices are valid, and recognize that all your choices are valid, you get to make decisions in accordance with your, um, with, with your own autonomy. Right? So that's a, um, that, right, those are two fundamental decisions. Now, if I were attempting to be a little bit uh, you know, epigrammatic, but I'll give you a, a, a clear sense about, uh, about what, my, uh, what my bias is. Um, I would say there's a dialogue between Yoshua and Moshe. I think I put it up on the source sheet here, and I, and I, I didn't mention it back then. Um, in Bamid Bartet, here we are. Right? So the, whoever the Nar is runs and tells Moshe, and he tells him that Eldadu Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Yeshua, right, 9.28, Yeshua says to, uh, to Moshe, and he, he identifies himself as Moshe's servant, right? Yeshua is invested in Moshe, and he says, Moshe Klaim, right? You, know, you should jail them, right? Because we can't have this kind of diffusion of authority. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Are you being zealous for me? Right? I would be perfectly happy if authority were completely diffused to everybody. Now, in practice, I recognize that's not happening. But, I don't, but my theoretical ideal, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says, is for everybody to be able to access Ritzvah and Hashem autonomously. So I think that that narrative is a really good way of saying that we should have a very, uh, a very strong bias um, towards the model that, autonom- that halakha is not intended as a way of depriving people of any responsibility for their actions other than following orders. Um, halakha is a way of improving people's autonomous choices, and sometimes autonomy isn't an option for whatever reason. Now, the implication of that is that ultimately, people, right, even when you ask a shaila, you still have a chrayas, right, the same way that the rabbis did, because you choose whom, who makes a decision. And so, really, the question is who makes the decision for you? Right? It's not who decides halakha, it's who decides halakha for you. And you should make that decision with an awareness of the importance of communal cohesion and all sorts of those issues. So I wrote, um, I wrote a couple of things to give you. Right, these are um, two different Torah that uh, I wrote. That, right, that dealt with the question of whether you can ask for second opinions. Right, because we have there's a model where people quote the phrase "I say the harav from vote, which unquestionably doesn't mean that, but it's a good rhetorical device um, that you always have to ask all your questions to the same rabbi, and that's just not true. Um, but it is a, a test of integrity, as we talked about by Beit Hill and Beit Shammai, that you shouldn't ask your questions in a way where you're trying to just rely on leniencies, um, or you're, right, that says that's dishonest, or, or um, stringencies, in which case you're a fool. But you don't have to ask one person, you have to ask within a consistent vision of Torah, um, as opposed to simply matters of convenience. Um, so, um, Rabbi Reichman uh, quotes the Rav as saying that um, Dafka, Rida you Halacha, know, requires asking, right, that uh, nobody, right, this is his key line, is that you can't sue for damages if a halachic judge uh, made an error, be, um, in a, in a, at least on, on this issue, because nobody should rely exclusively on the person they asked the Shiloh to, um, right? Because he made a decision, 
uh, right, or she made a decision, but presumably they would benefit from being in dialogue with other people and their opinions would improve. So there's nothing wrong, right? You, in fact, you have an obligation under certain circumstances. If you think they made a mistake, you have an obligation to go ask somebody else. And then we can talk about, right, what happens if, right, what, hap- you know, what happens if you felt yourself to be making a nether to be down by the first party, whether you're, in, whether you're in, automatically entitled to rely on the second opinion or whether you have to go back to the first party and get them to recognize their error. But there's no reason to say that you, ha- and it, it's against, um, I think it's against the fundamental concepts of Torah to say that your responsibility ends because you referred it to somebody who is a possibly, who is a competent halachic authority. And I talked about in this issue that, you know, where that, I play with that came home to me was um, when a student called me with, what we called the birth control, Shaila, uh, right after marriage. And at that point in NYU, everyone knew what various positions were. At that point, the most lenient option was to give you, say you can use birth control for the first year, but you have to come back and ask again every year. Um, and at that point, that was the liberal position. And this dialogue and some others convinced me that it was not really a pastorally uh, wise position. But a student called me and said, what do I do? And in the course of the conversation, being very smart, he said, um, you know, and really having gotten what uh, the summer baby Josh was about, um, he, at least in this way, he said, but what am I really doing? I'm calling you because I know there are multiple options and I'm pretty confident, I know the right, which position you'll take. So why, why does it make sense for me to call you as opposed to just make the decision myself? Um, and right, that's a really, right? And that, that is a, um, right? So in a Ray Linzer scenario, it's the rabbi referring, the, refer, right? There's a, there's a cutout, but fundamentally that's the issue, right? If there are, two halachic positions that are procedurally valid. So, right, um, and you know that, right? Everyone on the vast majority of issues, everyone knows um, the range of issues because Rabbi Google tells you that. So there's a, you know, so if it's, if it's a specific issue, you can say, if I'm trying to be consistent, I want to call my rabbi and have my rabbi tell me, right, tell me how this issue is consistent. But if you've already researched it, you're not picking a rabbi you go to, you're not picking, you're go, picking a rabbi because you know what their opinion is. And if they gave you a different answer, you would go to a second rabbi because it just meant you picked the wrong rabbi, not that you uh, give the wrong response. And that happens. And particularly influence happens was, you know, when somebody um, I knew of asked the birth control question to one rabbi, assuming that because they were in NYU, uh, they were identified with a particular kind of vision of women's role in the world. And it turned out they were just wrong about that rabbi. That rabbi is in NYU, but doesn't share that position about the role of women in the world. And so they got an answer that would have completely um, radically altered their life um, by accident. So I think that's a very real challenge. At the same time, uh, I want to say that one of the, one of the, the first halachic decisions that really, or models of halachic decisions that really affected me and that, that it really you know, made me interested in Sak and like come back to as a touchstone was when I was a freshman in NYU, Rabbi Willick presented to us as if it was liable. That was actually a Shiloh from several years before. And he presented to us the question of um, Tay-Sachs abortion. And what he said to us is, you know, a congregant came to me. You know, they had unfortunately received the, uh, the news that their, um, that their fetus uh, had the Tay-Sachs gene, and they wanted to know if they could abort. And so Rabbi Willick said, you know, um, Rabbi Moshe says it's Asur, but since Eliezer uh, Rabbi Waldenberg says that it's mutter. 
who am I to decide between the Tzitzeliezer and Rav Moshe? So he said, I sent them to ask Rabbi Waldenberg. In other words, he did exactly what the Rabbi Lindsay statement said to do. He reached the point where he said, the, these positions are procedurally indistinguishable. I don't have the authority to, to, um, to make a sub, or the confidence to make a substantive ruling within halakha. So I'm going to send them to the person who will make the decision that I see as, um, as ethically superior. Uh, so I don't, you know, and that I thought that was a that was a beautiful move. It had a deep impact on me. It was what the people needed. Uh, very likely, very likely, they felt better asking the Tzitzeliezer than they would have felt asking Rabbi Willig at that stage in his career. You know, presumably in his late twenties, early thirties, he didn't have anywhere near the social authority that he has now. Um, okay, so to sum up, what I want to say is the real issue as to who decides halacha is whether halakha is ideally decided by experts because the fundamental goal is to reach the best decision objectively, or whether ideally halakha is decided by every individual, but people shouldn't make wrong decisions. So in order to avoid them from making wrong decisions, we require them to interact with the system. Also, sometimes the system isn't set up for, the system requires concerted action, and that requires some kind of, right, some kind of political process in which people can engage with each other. Uh, my own bias, you see, is clear, and I didn't do it in this year, but I would, uh, I would say that although I did, I did quote Rabbi Reichman's uh, understanding of, of Rabbi Soloveitchik's position there, but I should say that I believe this is fundamentally rooted in Rabbi Soloveitchik's notion that autonomy and dignity are fundamental religious goods, and, um, and I've, I can argue that on pure, uh, philosoph- on pure you know, Jewish philosophic grounds in that way, and for those of you who are interested in a more sophisticated approach, so I have an essay on my academia page, um, which I argue that Rabbi Soloveitchik built this notion into his concept of smicha and his whole conception of halachic authority. And he basically argued that the ultimate Jewish human good is to be able to decide the laws um, which, your, uh, right, which uh, construct your religious world. And that fundamentally, the is the purpose of having a mitzvah Talmud Torah. The purpose of having a mitzvah Talmud Torah is that everybody gets to make autonomous decisions about the good in their life. I will talk about that a little bit more on Motzei Shabbat in the session on um, Halachic Man Enters the Matrix, or whatever it was that I, I called this man. Okay, I have talked for an hour straight. I apologize. Um, I apologize for that. I didn't stop and take questions. Um, so I'm going to stop now and, um, and see if anyone has any questions. And uh, as always, if there aren't questions now, then uh, you're more than welcome to email me uh, with questions as well. So are, are there questions at the end? Okay. I guess not. Um, I bet you know since since um, so many of you are still here, I imagine that it wasn't deathly dull. Although of course you know I, I wasn't. Uh, most of you are, are don't have video on, so uh, I can't tell. You could all be sleeping at your desks. Um, but uh, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll have the last one uh, of this series tomorrow night. Uh, there's also this year at ten thirty tomorrow morning on uh, on Zoom, and then there's the Friday morning. Uh, and the shorter share Friday morning and the Saturday night share. 
and that'll conclude our program for this week. I hope that I'm not sure I'm going to do anything as uh, a program as extensive next week, but I hope I'll have a schedule out at some point tomorrow. I hope some point tomorrow, so that if in fact you've been planning your lives around the shurim, that you'll know that you'll know when and what uh, there will be. I thank you very much. Thanks, Rabbi Clapper. Thank you, Rabbi Clapper. Thank you, Lailatov.